On this week's episode of Where We Are, I, Melissa, will interview Michael about his brand new book, The Spirit of Our Politics, Spiritual Formation, and the Renovation of Public Life. I think you're going to love this one. This is Where We Are. We are the Where's. I'm Michael. I'm Melissa. And Melissa, I'm excited, a little terrified that you're going to interview me about the book, uh, but I have no idea what questions you're going to ask. I just got back from travel. You've been preparing. Uh, I, uh, this, this is, this is your show. Uh, uh, Please uh, don't hurt me. Yes, I'm the captain now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, To yeah. quote the movie Captain Phillips. Yeah. I've been looking forward to this episode a lot because you've just launched uh, a brand new book, uh, The Spirit of Our Politics. It's been going great this week. I've been super excited for you. It's been so much fun celebrating it because it's been a long time coming. We've been preparing for this book coming out for so many months. And now you and I get to talk about it on our very own podcast. You've been doing podcast interviews all week, other kinds of interviews. Uh, and <laughs> I'm interested to talk about a lot of the parts of the book that I really like uh, and that I, I found in the 22 times that I've read it. Very interesting. <laughs> but before I jump into uh, this little marital interview here, I want to welcome all of our new listeners. Yes. You went on Annie... Annie, well, of course, Annie Downs' uh, That Sounds Fun podcast this week. We are part of the That Sounds Fun network. We love being a part of this network. And we have gained a bunch of new uh, followers and listeners. And so welcome. We hope you like it here. Yes, welcome, welcome. Uh, we hope you like news and politics. That is what we do. We try to make it fun, truly, um, even in the midst of, you know, how politics can get. Uh, and... Liking Jesus helps as yes. well. Yes, yes. Yeah. We are also two yeah. Christians. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you can count on us in that aspect. And we've been working in politics for years. And uh, we just want to bring our experiences to bear and to help guide you through the news of the day, through politics, especially when it gets hard. Uh, because you and I are trained to handle these issues. And we want to take, I'm always saying we want to take the temperature down for you, make you a little bit less anxious, a little bit less worried, a little bit less angry. And I actually think that's a really good segue okay. into uh, this talking about this book. So for anybody who is has no idea what this book is, I just want to give a little primer for it. So I just want, so just give me a 30 to 60 second like elevator type pitch about what this book is about. You have it. Yeah. Oh, me. Yes. <laughs> this interview is going so well so far. I thought you were at No. <laughs> so this book, the central premise is that the kind of people we are has much to do with the kind of politics and public life that we have. And I am placing in this book politics under and within the context of the gospel when we have uh, narratives and tendencies to place politics either above the gospel 
or completely on the outside of the gospel, sort of, uh, sort of as this area of life that's cordoned off from God. Uh, and so my, one of my hopes for this book is that it empowers Christians to think about politics as a part of their life and as presenting opportunities to draw nearer to and become more like Jesus. And so that that's what that's what this book does. I guess one other essential thing to say about it is that the book very explicitly is an application of Dallas Willard's ideas and thought to politics and public life. And who is Dallas Willard? Dallas Willard is um, a uh, was a philosopher and Christian teacher. He taught at the University of Southern California uh, for decades. For a time, he was chair of the philosophy department there. He also was a Christian teacher and author who wrote books like The Divine Conspiracy, Spirit of the Disciplines, Renovation of the Heart, The Allure of Gentleness, The Great Omission, all of which uh, I, I, I cover and talk about uh, in, in the spirit of our politics. Do you feel like uh, readers will have had to have had... Uh, Sorry, I was about to say listen. Well, it could be listened or yeah, read Dallas sure. before in no. order to read your book. No, no, no. I, I, I think the book stands on its own. I will say I do uh, hope that the book might lead people to want to explore more of Dallas's work. But no, you don't have to have read uh, any any Willard before before reading the spirit of our politics. And the final just table-setting question, who do you hope will read this book? Well, so uh, there's a chapter in the book addressed specifically to pastors and parents. Mm -hmm. And so if, if I had to sort of narrow it down, if pastors and Christian parents read this book, uh, um, uh, I, I I'd be very happy, and I and I think they'd be well served. But really, this book is for uh, is for Christians generally, and I would hope that even non Christians uh, could come to this book um, and and gain gain from it. That civic leaders that I think increasingly have. Uh, sort of Christianity comes to comes to their desks uh, uh, for for negative reasons mm -hmm. that civic leaders might come to this book and regain an imagination themselves for the uh, kinds of positive contributions that Christianity has to offer our politics and public life. Great. So, in the introduction and the first chapter of the book, you go through why things look the way that they do. And you point to something called political sectarianism, something we've talked about actually quite a bit on this podcast before. It's similar to polarization, but what's different about this framing, political sectarianism, that you like? Yes. So political sectarianism is a framework for describing the particular kind of polarization we have today. Uh, I like it for a number of reasons. One, it avoids, I think, what can sometimes be unhelpful his, 
historical debates. You know, is polarization worse now than ever before? Uh, those conversations might have some merit, um, but I found often they're, they derail a conversation about, well, what do we do with the current state of things? So political sectarianism doesn't make any claim about whether this is the worst polarization we've ever had. It, it just defines the kind of polarization we have. And the social scientists who, uh, who uh, created the framework uh, call it, uh, uh, say that the kind of polarization we have today is a toxic cocktail of three ingredients. First, uh, the tendency uh, uh, of aversion to dislike or distrust one, one's political opponents, the tendency of othering uh, those who are have different political views, and then the, the, the tendency of, of moralization or what I call a misplaced moralization, which is to elevate political disagreement to the, the level of uh, sin or iniquity or pure uh, contestations of, of good uh, good versus evil. Uh, and this toxic cocktail of aversion, othering, and moralization has had disastrous effects for our politics, for governance, but also spillover effects into our social lives, the functioning of our families, our churches, uh, our communities. Okay, so we we start there, a little bit of diagnosis. Why are we the way that we are, basically? And in the, in the next several chapters, you go through a lot of application of Dallas Willard's various books and ideas and apply them to our political life, like you said. It's a lot of concepts, and it's a new paradigm setting. It's the real intellectual heart behind the book. And I call it a new paradigm because your application of Willardian concepts just hasn't really been done before. It's like a, it's like a new imagination. There are plenty of interviews out there already that really get to that part of the book that you've already done. So, you know, you could check out the convo with, with Annie on That Sounds Fun, um, Caitlin Shess over at the Holy Post podcast, the Faith Angle Forum podcast that you did with Tim Alberta. The, Conversa the Conversatio Conversatio. Yeah, the Martin Institute. The Martin yeah. Institute Conversation that you've recently done. So those podcasts really covered that, the, that intellectual heart of the book really well. But I want to dive into chapters seven and nine, the super duper practical parts of your book. Uh, these chapters are more for the reader who says something like, and quote, so I've got the vision, intention, and means to see things more clearly, Michael. I see that. Politics is penultimate, not ultimate, that it's prudential. I understand that political engagement is actually okay, and I can be more gentle and become the kind of person our politics needs, at least at the 30,000-foot level. Now, what do I do in the day-to-day? -day? And, you know, end the quote. Um, so in Chapter 7, you provide a bunch of spiritual disciplines for acting out that, that vision, intention, and means, that what Dallas Willard calls vim, part of his philosophy. And... Uh, how that leads to like a sort of whole life discipleship alongside politics. What are some of the favorite spiritual disciplines that you, that you provided in the book and which one challenges you the most? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, so I think that the disciplines of silence and solitude are particularly 
potent and necessary given some of the particularities of this of this moment sort of a pervasive media uh, 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 pervasive uh, political media that seems to saturate our lives uh, uh, a fractured and persistent um, set of technologies um, silence and solitude uh, can help us um, Reset and remember that we are human beings with souls, that we are more than just sort of the, the sum of the various inputs and affections vying for our attention. So silence and solitude, I think, are, 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 really, are really key. Um, I crave silence and solitude. I, I think I am challenged... They're very practically. Um, yeah. We have two yes. kids under mm-hmm. a five and a two year old. Uh, 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 have uh, uh, a full work life, uh, and so um, you know. Thankfully, we're often able to work out um, situations where 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 we can we can. Uh, find time for solitude and silence but you know that it's not as plentiful as uh as other seasons of of our lives um i there are a number of other uh disciplines confession is is an interesting one uh and i talk in the book about confession as a sort of a, a, a counterweight to the tendency to moralize. Uh, and so I, I think that can be key. Um, there's been a lot of um, controversy and sort of pushback around the place of prayer in politics. Yes. And uh, I think we need to uh, be very careful about embracing uh, I- embracing or even appearing to embrace the notion of any conflict between real sincere prayer and a concern for injustice, a concern for uh, our politics. So I talk about those and other other sort of traditional spiritual practices and disciplines and the way I, I, I see them contributing to the kind of people we are in our politics. I also talk about a a sort of 21st century set of uh, disciplines or practices that are specifically oriented towards our, our public life. And so those are things like I talk about how we might bear one another's burdens in our politics. I talk about the value of breaking groupthink. I talk about uh, how we might go about cons- uh, news consumption, and so there are there are these sorts of uh, new or different kinds of of practices specifically for how we engage political discussions and participation. Uh, and so, 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 yeah. I, I, my hope is that uh, folks find this chapter not only practical, but I think. 
I think too often people want to jump right to, well, just tell me what to do. But if, if, uh, if you're doing activities uh, without a vision for what God's life looks like, what your life in the kingdom looks like, and then a vision for what our politics might be, then those activities are, are, are not going to do the work that I think that they, that, that they can. Yeah, it's kind of like running into a burning building with no plan. Um, yes. Because I, yeah, yeah. I, I notice it a lot too. You actually hear it in the thoughts and prayers discourse as well, where they're kind of like, we just need action now. And it's like, I kind of want to sit and go, well, what action are you thinking about? Right. Um, not to not to be um, a jerk about, with that question, but just like a, do you, do you really have a plan or is that just something that you heard somebody else say? And uh, sometimes that silence and solitude and that prayer, um, especially as followers of Jesus, like we have the Holy Spirit on our side at all times available to us right now. And you can actually uh, talk to God about these things and actually ask for the action to come and what you must do. But yes, it, it has been very interesting um, always, especially in politics, about people just saying, "Okay, well then, oh, you know, how do I how do how do I practically do this?" It's a completely valid and good question to have. But yes, the whole uh, you know the first chapter is a bit of diagnosis, but then chapters two, three, four, five, six are supposed to really help people understand how they can become the kind of person that our politics needs and then it's the practices that come with that full foundation um undergirding you so that you're kind of not uh it's not like a um like a mark four situation where you know the seed has been sort of thrown onto like a sidewalk situation versus thrown into like yeah, yeah, yeah. you know more um uh good soil yeah 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 so at the but at the end very end of chapter seven, I think it's going to be something that people really really like, because even this even the the first part of chapter seven, um, it's great to talk especially the twenty first century disciplines because they really might be things that really challenge you you haven't thought about before, but the end was a late addition to the book because you had an early reader say to you, hey, I really really need to know what you Michael imagine a day in the life would look like for somebody practicing these things. Could you, you know, would you be willing yeah, to like provide that? Yeah, like how would this actually work in the context of, of someone's life. life? Yeah. Yes. And so you, the, the I very... I took that very literally. You took that <laughs> yeah, very yeah. literally because actually um, it's supposed to be sort of a week in the life of, of Laura's life and it's actually named after the person who asked for it, <laughs> um, which I think is like really awesome. Um, and so I'm going to, I'm going to play that now for our listeners. Um, so it's a kind of like a little excerpt that we're going to play. Oh, of just, wow. An exclusive. Yeah. You know, uh, the, this part of chapter seven, the sort of week in Laura's life. Laura is a 30 something married mother of two children with a full-time job outside the home. She has always been interested in civics, but in recent years, she has become increasingly concerned about the nature of our politics how it is affecting her family and her community. In the past, Laura didn't necessarily intend to separate her Christian faith from her politics, but she was wary of all the ways in which connecting faith and politics could go wrong. And so she never really committed to be a Christian in her political life. Of course, some of the positions she took were influenced by her faith, 
and she generally thought of herself as a decent person, but she had never really connected the dots. Now, though, she felt like the time for connection had come. She wanted to pursue the good of her neighbors through political involvement. So for months now, she has intentionally sought guidance from the Lord as she has taken up practices to learn how to follow Jesus in her political life. Here is what that looked like for Laura this particular week. On Sunday, Laura had signed up to lead in prayer that morning. Many people at her church knew she may not have voted for her state's governor. And so it surprised some that she would pray for the governor and the administration, that they might serve the state and its people well and be protected and blessed by God. Laura also prayed for the nation of Myanmar, which was in the throes of a political crisis with significant human rights implications. Several members of the congregation who hadn't heard about the crisis in Myanmar and hadn't specifically thought about whether God cared about what was happening in Myanmar were prompted by Laura's prayer to donate to a Christian nonprofit serving in the country. Following church, Laura, her husband, and their children volunteered at a local food bank after reading a news article about a specific community in their city that qualified as a food desert an area where local schools were reporting that students had inadequate access to food. While volunteering, Laura spoke with workers at the food bank and folks from the neighborhood and learned more about the challenges the community was facing. Some of the people said that crime was a significant issue in their city, that it might even be connected to the hunger issues they were facing. That evening, Laura's husband took care of the kids while Laura took her monthly evening of solitude and silence to seek the Lord in advance of a busy week. On Monday, Laura shared an article she had read on Sunday night about crime prevention on her social media account. She wasn't totally convinced about the article's conclusion, and she made that clear. But she also said some of the arguments in the article were worth considering. Tuesday was election day. Laura was able to take a half day off from work and volunteered to drive voters to the polls. She volunteered through a local church, and she was sure that not all of the people she picked up were going to vote the way she voted. What better way, she thought, to support the principles of democracy and to recognize the dignity of the people I'm serving than to aid in their civic participation, regardless of how they will vote. Laura had spent time researching the candidates as best she could in the midst of her busy life, and she prayed that she would use her vote in a way that would best steward the limited influence she had for the good of her neighbors. There was no way to express with one vote all of the valid concerns and opinions she heard at the food bank earlier that week, but she considered them as she made her decisions in the voting booth. The first time I read that section, I was so invigorated by it. It just wasn't intimidating at all. And I mean, I, we only just played about half of that, that story of, of Laura's week. And I want to know what's, what happens to it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hooked. Yeah. Yes. But I find this part of the book to just be so encouraging and invigorating. And it, um, just because so much right now is written in a way to kind of just make you fearful of stepping out um and maybe trying something new or trying a different way that i 
I just think that our listeners will will really like this chapter itself, and then I think they'll really like this this section, which is just so so practical. Uh, so I just want to move on to the last chapter, and uh, in chapter nine, you take on the example of someone who actually is still living today who started off their life very young, living in the thick of politics. And I, and I mean the ugliest part of politics. And honestly, the best way to describe it is she survived wholly intact walking with Jesus through it all. Um, that person is Ruby Bridges. Tell us about why her story is so illustrative, illustrative for you and why you ended the spirit of our politics with the story of her life. Yeah, so... I think I would have talked about Ruby regardless, but what what really made it work mm-hmm. is in the second chapter of the book, I tell this story that Dallas Willard tells in Divine Conspiracy mm-hmm. about a, prof- a Harvard professor, Robert Coles. Yep. And I won't share that story now it usually I, I will say it is uh even just in the few days since the book came out uh that story is one that people raise uh, uh quite often uh, um robert coles though uh is also and, and that's a chapter in disappearance of moral knowledge so yes. i tell the story about robert coles um Who's teaching? Who's teaching a class and tells a story that connects with the idea of the disappearance of moral knowledge? Well, uh, the Ruby Bridges story comes from a, a book that Robert Coles, the same Robert Coles Dallas Willard writes about in the Divine Conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Robert Coles uh, wrote a book about the moral life of children. So he's a psychologist. He interviewed uh, uh, children, one of them being Ruby Bridges. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ruby Bridges, as a six-year-old girl, uh, reintegrated uh, segregated school in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, she did so. Uh, she was escorted by federal marshals through crowds of racist white people who were shouting race uh, racist epithets at her uh uh there, there's um uh one particularly jarring story is one protester actually held up a wooden casket with a with a little black doll in it i mean so like you know, imagine being a six-year-old mm-hmm. girl and walking through that. Um, uh, but but she did it for days and days and days. She, um, Robert Coles is trying to assess what kind of person could do this. And also Coles, as a psychologist, uh, was uh, was concerned about the trauma uh, that he suspected uh, 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 anyone enduring something like this would 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 have. Uh, 
And so he he's doing interviews with Ruby and also with people who know her. He stumbles upon the knowledge that Ruby, as she would walk through these crowds, would pray for the protesters. And he hadn't really picked up that she had religious faith. Frankly, I don't think that he thought a six-year-old girl could have a religious, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, a, a religious commitment. And so uh, in this chapter, I talk about these exchanges that Coles would have with Ruby Bridges about how um, what she knew about God and how that connected to what she was what she did in Louisiana. Uh, and it is uh, Ruby is a an, an exemplar of presuming upon the Lord. Uh, uh, Willard uh, at one point said, Jesus was the most presumptuous mm-hmm. person to ever live. Mm-hmm. And Ruby was presumptuous uh, too. And I can't wait for people uh, to read about her story. Um, it connects to my time in the White House in some interesting ways. I don't know if we have time to go into that, but but I, 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 I think that this... Uh, will be one of the one of the things that that most captures people's uh, imagination for for what's possible. It's a heck of a way to end this book, and it's just so illustrative. Like I was saying, um, as you know, you kind of did you know a week in the life of Laura and Ruby Bridges is a real living person. She's only sixty nine years old. She's still living today. She's Correct. only she 69. has a book coming out this year. Yeah, <laughs> uh, she and our our daughter is five. Yes. And Ruby was six when people would shout these things at her and treat her the way that they did as she was just trying to go to school um, day in, day out. And I, when I first read this account, because I didn't know all the details that you that you put in this chapter about how everything intersects and uh, the things that she said to Robert during the interviews are just wild childlike it is also one of the best examples of childlike faith that i feel like you could ever have access to but i think about our daughter being five years old as well and try to imagine her being one year older that's it and in a situation like that and so it's 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 just a heck of a way to to end a book and again like the the last few chapters of your book because i know that the intellectual heart comes you know the Diagnosis comes first, and then the intellectual and the intellectual heart comes next. But the last three chapters of this book, I think, are just something to. It's almost like um, it's invigorating in some ways. It's exciting in some ways because you're actually proposing. Here are some ways forward. Here's a new. I'm presenting a new paradigm. What will you do with it? And I think for some people, it actually be comforting as well. Yeah. Because. I find that it feels like for the past several years, especially for some folks, especially for some Christians, I should say, not just some folks, some Christians since 2016. And, I, and you know, I'm not even pointing to like certain people in the election. I'm just talking to like the feelings that people have and the vitriol and with social media taking an, taking an even greater hold on people and what it fuels and the animosity um, that... It's a bit comforting the the end of this book that something 
can be done that somebody is trying to find a way through the wilderness is what I think a lot of people have been feeling like for the past few years. So I'm very happy to talk with you about the book finally. Uh, I hope that folks go out and buy it. Go out and, and as Annie Downs said on her podcast, go and buy a copy for your pastor because they're going to be facing a lot of pressures this year in 2024. Um, and I think that this book could be really, really helpful to them in getting through it. And uh, just thanks for sticking with us. Thanks to all the new listeners. Yes, yes. One, one other thing I'd add is uh, I, I'm, I'm the, the, the founder and president of an organization called the Center for Christianity and Public Life. And we've created a free discussion guide for small groups, book clubs, individuals, really, if you just want a guide for walking through the book. And uh, folks can access that guide at ccpubliclife.org. And I, one, one helpful thing is we, we've provided a sort of reading plan. And if you follow the reading plan, at the, at the end of it, uh, uh, we'll be doing a live uh, Q&A only with those who have been using the uh, discussion guide. So I'll, I'll be doing a live Q&A with those who have been using the discussion guide and answering questions that have come up uh, among those who have really worked through the book and, and have outstanding kinds of uh, questions about, uh, 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 about it. Yeah, I think this book is really great to go through with a small group in community with people uh, because it's not just, you know, it, asking the question, what kind of person are you and who are you becoming are some questions, I think, to really not just wrestle inwardly, but yes. outward, outwardly in community with others. Um, because I think that you might find some camaraderie, some other people who are struggling with the same things that you're struggling with, and you'll find that you're not alone by any means. So yes, at ccpubliclife.org, go and sign up for the discussion guide if you've already bought the book. If you're thinking about buying the book, go do that and then sign up for the discussion guide. Who doesn't love some good questions when you're reading a book that is chock full of new ideas? (laughs) Well, Michael, I really enjoyed this. We're going to return to our regular type of podcast episode next week, talking about whatever is going on in the political world at at any given moment. But um, it was nice to stop with you. Yes. Talk about this. Yes. Really excited about this. Thank you for the good questions. This has been Where We Are. Bye. I still wanna turn up, yeah, I still wanna turn up, all I want is to go again, but you ain't picking your phone.